Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan, and thank you for joining us today. This is day one of our Bible in a Year challenge. I will not be having this introduction at the beginning of every reading, but since this is our first one, and we're entering into a new book, I want to not only introduce the groundwork of how we're going to do this, but also introduce the book of the Bible that we're going to be reading, which is something that I will do for every book that we go into. So let me briefly explain how these daily readings are going to go, and then in future episodes we will just go straight into the material. This Bible in a Year challenge is designed to be done Monday through Friday, where we will be reading four chapters of the respective book of the Bible that we're in, and then we will spend one chapter in the Psalms, and when we're done with Psalms, we will go into the Proverbs, which will be much later in our studies. I chose to do it this way in contrast to the one we did last time because I want to make sure that we keep a constant posture of praise and admiration towards the Lord. And if we are honest with ourselves, there are portions of Scripture that are more challenging to read and to get engaged with, and it is a nice break of pace so that it does not feel as cumbersome as it could be. So today I will introduce the book and we will read the material. And then at the end, I will provide some commentary based on what the Lord leads me to speak about. And then I will challenge us with a verse for us to memorize. This is going to be crucial to our growth. So there will be a daily verse that we will be working to memorize throughout our days. And I highly recommend over the weekend that you recap the five verses that we talked about and strive to have those memorized before the next week comes. This way, at the end of our study, you'll have memorized at least 200 to 250 verses of the Bible. And at first, it may seem like a monumental task, but it is not if you take it day by day, piece by piece. So I hope you're excited as I am and get started with reading God's Word and spending time with Him every day. But before we get into it, let me give you an introduction to the first book that we'll be reading today, which is the book of Genesis. And then once we read the first four chapters of Genesis, I will give us a brief introduction into the book of Psalms, and that will be the last time that we talk about that until we go into the next book of the Bible, which will be Exodus. Naturally, being day one of our reading, we will be in Genesis, which is a Latin word which means beginning. This is the story of human history. This is real-life history that we will be reading here. So, some of it may seem fantastical to you, and some of it may seem unreal to you, as if it's questionable whether it actually happened or not. One thing that we have to understand about God's Word is that this is historical documentation. Some of this is eyewitness account. Some of this is based off of historical, written, or oral tradition. But ultimately, all of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so it is all truthful. I say that because this was written by Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which is commonly called the Pentateuch, or as the Jewish people would call the Torah. 
So this is what is considered the law of Moses right here, as well as the origin of humanity in general. Moses wrote this somewhere in between 1450 to 1410 BC, based on our historical records. Now, obviously, Moses wasn't there at the beginning of all things. So he likely had a compilation of oral and written records of early history, as well as, obviously, God's input on things, because only God was there at the beginning, and only he would know how everything was created. But it is without a doubt that Moses is the author, simply because not only does the Pentateuch throughout the five books affirm Moses as its author, but the New Testament assumes that this is fact, and this is history, and that it was written by Moses. There are many essential, deep theological truths that we need to understand from this book, and we will see those in the first four chapters that we're going into today. And while my commentary will not be an exhaustive commentary of every single thing we read, I will be highlighting important pieces of scripture that we either gloss over so often, or that needs to be understood from a basic level. Among all ancient historical books, this book is the most unique of all, and is the only book that speaks the truth of our origins. So, without further delay, why don't we go ahead and get started? Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse, and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning, a third day. 
Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day, 
and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided into four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of the land is good. The bedellum and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flowed east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand, and take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden, to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel, his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you, and you will be a vagrant and a wanderer of the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived, and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city, and called the name of the city Enoch, after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Erod, and Erod became the father of Mehuhael, and Mehuhael became the father of Methushael, 
and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son, and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 1. And now for a brief background on the Psalms in general. The Psalms are a variety of songs or laments or praises that are compiled into what is called the Book of Praises by the Jewish people. This is, in essence, the hymn book of the people of Israel. All of the times that they praise God, they recognize his sovereignty, they create poetry and songs to honor the Lord or to celebrate something that he did. All of this is what we find here in the Psalms. There is no one author for all the Psalms. Based upon documentation and manuscripts that we have found throughout history, it is safe to say about 73 Psalms are attributed to David by name. Two of them are attributed to Solomon, 12 of them to what are called the sons of Korah. Some of them are attributed to Asaph, who is the leader of the choir in David's time, one by a man named Heman, one by a man named Ethan, and one by Moses. There may have been more that were to these individuals, but there are some psalms that don't have any mention of authorship, so we really don't know. Now, the other reason I'm mentioning this, besides introducing the book, is because this is a different style of literature that we're entering into. We are not supposed to be reading the Psalms the same way that we would read Genesis, because Genesis, in almost every way, is literal historical documentation, whereas the Psalms is poetry and song. And as we know from our poetry and our songs today, not everything that is said in those songs and poetry is meant to be taken literally. For example, many psalms will say that you keep me safe in your wings. God doesn't have wings. He doesn't have a body. He is a spirit. 
And so we're not to understand him to be bird-like in appearance. I know I'm using a very simple explanation here, but we need to understand that some of this is going to be wordplay, some of this is going to be metaphorical, some of it is meant to be symbolic, anthropomorphic, all these different kinds of language that are used to illustrate praise and honor to God. So be very careful when we read the Psalms not to take everything so literally, because this is not the same kind of literature that you see in Genesis. And I can't think of a better place to start than chapter 1, not only because it's the first chapter of the book, obviously, but this particular psalm is such a beautiful, important one to understand. And we'll get into the description of it at the end of the reading. Well, let's go ahead and begin. Psalm chapter 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Okay, congratulations. You took the very first step in the journey that will last us the remainder of this year. So now let's understand what we read today in a little bit more detail. So what we see in chapter 1 of the book of Genesis is the beginning of everything. Quite literally, when it says here that God created the heavens and the earth, this is talking about everything. Now, God did not create himself, obviously. He exists outside of space and time, and these things were created by him. Therefore, he is not affected by them. God has always existed, and this is what the Bible teaches quite often, that he exists outside of what we understand as existence. And he has existed from eternity past to present on all the way to eternity future. So there has never been a time that God ceased to exist. He has always been there, and for much of the time before he created us, he was in perfect communion with himself. Let's be clear to say that God did not create us because he was lonely, or that he needed worshipers, or that he receives power from worship. That is in direct contrast to what many religions believe across the world, and how gods work. Our God is completely self-sufficient. He is completely self-existent and self-reliant. He doesn't need anyone else, and there is nothing that is impossible for him. So for him to have a dependency on human beings limits him greatly. This is hard to grasp, but we worship a God in true Christianity that has unlimited power and unlimited wisdom and unlimited ability to do as he pleases. 
He has sovereignty over all creation, which means he has a lordship over it. And that means over every single aspect of creation, down to the cellular, molecular level. So there is nothing that is outside of God's reach, and that's including you. So let's just keep that in mind as we go through this. So in the very first verses of chapter 1, we have all three members of the Trinity listed here. In the very first verse, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the Hebrew, this word God is Elohim. Elohim is a masculine plural noun. That means that the Jewish people have always understood that God is one God, but he is also multiple, in the respect that there are three persons that constitute what we call the Trinity. The Trinity is not a word that is used in the Bible, that is of human creation, but the identification of the three members of the Trinity has been repeatedly mentioned throughout Scripture. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three of them are mentioned here. We see God being the Father. The Father is the one that is overseeing all this activity. It says in verse 2 that the Spirit of God was over the waters. This is in direct reference to the Holy Spirit. Now, if you compare verse 3 with what you read in John chapter 1 of the New Testament, it says that Jesus Christ is the Word of God, and all things were created through him. And so anytime that we see God speak here, that we should immediately attribute this to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our Savior, the God-man that walked the earth and died for our sins, is present at the creation because he is God. That is mind-boggling to try to fully understand, I know, but this is the reality of Scripture, and it tells us here at the very first verses of the Bible. And one thing I did not notice until this reading, which is what I love about reading the Bible, that every time you look into it, you learn something new, even after years of dissecting it. Look at what he does at the very beginning of the creation. He separates things. He makes distinctions and separations. And that's something that is of vital significance to our spirituality as we go further into the Bible. Because Christianity, in its very essence, is a separation. When we are called into salvation by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and the belief in Jesus Christ, we become a new creation in ourselves. And it separates us. God calls us to be a holy people. And the word holy literally means to cut. And therefore, you can imagine a pattern or a picture that is on a canvas, and God is cutting you out of that canvas and separating you into a different category. That is essentially what that separation is. And so you see here, the very first thing he separates in verse 4 is the separation of light and darkness. God knows that there is no difference to him, but 
he is usually attributed as being light, and evil is usually attributed as being darkness. And so when he separates us, we come out of darkness, and we are brought into his marvelous light. And so this separation is existing from the very beginning, which is very interesting. But what's also interesting about this, quite literally, he created light before he created the sun and the moon and the stars. So where did the light come from? He was the light. God himself was the light. And that's also looking forward to the book of John, where he is called the light of the world. Jesus Christ was the light of the world at creation, and he is still our light today. That will never change. Praise God for that beautiful revelation of himself in the very opening verses of the Bible. Now, at the end of verse 5, it says there was evening and morning one day. In the Hebrew, this is a literal one calendar day, 24 hours. There is no gap theory where between one verse and another, millions of years passed. I know there are some passages of Scripture that say that time is irrelevant to God and that a thousand years is like a day to Him, but this is quite literally seven days in which God is performing His activity. Six of them in creation and one observing a Sabbath, which is that rest that is mentioned here. The Hebrew word here is Sabbath, and that is going to come into play in the Law of Moses. But we see everything being made from the very beginning. We see time and space be made in the first opening verses. We see light and darkness being made. We see water being separated from itself. And in verse 8, in my translation, it calls it heaven, but it's not the heaven that God exists in. This is an old language way of saying sky, so let's not be confused with that. Then on the third day, God created dry land, and he created plant life. And it says that he created them after their kind, and that's going to come into play here in a minute after we talk about the animal kingdom. Then on the fourth day, it says that God created the sun, the moon, and the stars. In other words, he made the entire expanding universe at that point. So, is it really so far-fetched to imagine that the earth is the oldest thing in the universe? If we take scripture literally, which we should, it says that the earth is the oldest thing in the universe. And, quite frankly, plants existed before the sun, (laughs) which is mind-boggling to think about, but is true. And that's why we continue to see even today that the universe is still expanding. And it mentions it throughout scripture as well, that there is a very good reason for that, because God is actively doing that. Then on the fifth day, God created all sea life, and he created all the birds. And then on the sixth day, he created all the land creatures. And then finally, he made man in his own image. And what kind of image is it referring to, you think? The image of God that we were created in is a natural and moral likeness to God. Now, 
we were perfect at our beginning, but once Adam and Eve sinned in chapter 3, then we lost that moral likeness to God in the sense of perfection. We still retain the basic instinct of what is the difference between right and wrong, God's moral law. But the natural likeness is still there in that we, like God, have intellect that the animal kingdom does not have, we have emotions, and we have a will. And we retain those things even though we have fallen from grace. And the Bible also says here that he created us and then he gave us dominion over all the earth. We are to control and rule this planet. He gave it to us to own and to use as we see fit. Now, we should be responsible with it, of course, but we have direct dominion over it by God's decree. It says that the first humans were vegetarian. There was no killing of animals for food at that time. And you don't see that happen until after Noah's Ark. So up until that time, all people ate was plant life, from what we know. It doesn't really spell it out perfectly in here, but that is what is assumed. At the end of all his creating, God looked at everything that he did, and he said it was very good. This is important, because God did not make any mistakes with us. He made everything with perfect ecological balance. The cosmos is in harmony and chaos because of sin, but it existed at first in harmony. And let's be clear, God knew we were going to sin, and we don't even know how long it took for them to sin, whether they were in the garden for a day or for a thousand years. We don't really know. But we assume it didn't take very long for us to sin and fall from grace. Now, at the beginning of chapter 2, it mentions that God rested. Now, he rested not because he needed to take a break, but he did it for the sake of man. Because later on, when he establishes his law, he's going to enforce a Sabbath on his people as a day of rest. God has infinite power. He was not wearied by the creation of all things. Let's be clear. He did not exhaust all of his power in creating all things. He literally spoke it into existence, and it came to be exactly as he designed. It was not hard for him to create all the known universe. So let's not think that God is limited in his ability. He has infinite strength. Chapter 2 is more of a summary of what happened than anything else, because it recaps the creation of man, creation of plant life, the creation of animals, but it seems to contradict chapter 1. But all it is is just a brief summary of what happened overall. In addition, in verse 10, it mentions four different rivers. Now, we don't know where the Pishon or the Gihon rivers are, but we do know where the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers are. And some people try to use these references in order to find the Garden of Eden. But let's be reminded of one important thing. For one, this was thousands and thousands of years ago. And as we know it today, Eden was most likely in modern-day Iraq. And if you know anything about modern-day Iraq, it is not lush and green anymore. But also, do not forget that 
between this time and our time, there was a great flood where the whole earth was underwater. And so what they called these four rivers may not have been the same rivers after the flood. They may have been destroyed or changed direction or otherwise. But we can safely say that the Garden of Eden was destroyed in the flood. There is no trace of it left. So let's not start going into the Middle East hunting for something that really is not there, because you will be wasting your time. Besides, if we were to entertain that, God has it heavily guarded in ways that we can't enter it. So either way, it's fruitless to try to figure that out. Now, I want you to note one important thing in what God says here in verse 16 and 17. He commanded the man. At this point, Eve was not created yet. Eve did not get the original command from God. Adam did. Okay, that's important. He says that from any tree you may eat freely, but the one tree that you can't, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you eat from it, you will surely die. Then it says that Eve was created from Adam. God took one of his ribs and fashioned the rib into a woman. And then it says in verse 24 that a man shall leave his father and his mother and will be joined to his wife, and they will become one flesh. This is the deepest form of intimacy that a human being can get in relation to how God has communion with himself in the Trinity. So there's something very deep and significant about this. So from the very beginning, God's design was a communion between one woman and one man only. Singular. God has never said homosexuality is acceptable. In fact, he speaks the opposite of that, that it is sin. He never promotes or accepts polygamy. All of those things are constructs of man. This is how it was intended to be from the very beginning. One man and one woman exclusively. And then we come to our unfortunate fall in chapter 3. If we take it literally, the serpent mentioned here was a snake, but it had legs, as you can imagine. Because it said later on during the curse that you will go on your belly and eat dust. So before that, it was not on its belly. It likely had some sort of legs. Now, Satan is the one that entered into this serpent and spoke through the animal. And did you notice that Eve wasn't freaked out by that? She seemed to be completely fine with it. So whether this is a normal occurrence or she's not surprised by it, we don't really know. But the question is asked, and this is the same question that echoes today. Has God said, or your translation might say, did God really say? This is where sin gets its conception. And that's how Satan works best in our lives, in trying to plant that seed of doubt. Did God really say that? Does God really care about you? Does God really want the best for you? If he does, why isn't he letting you eat from that tree? So he begins playing his game with Eve, and Eve goes with it. We can't be mad at Eve, though, because we all do it. We all succumb to sin every single day. So we're no better than Eve. 
But listen to what she says in response to Satan. From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. God never said you couldn't touch it. So she added to the word of God, which is a dangerous thing to do. Either that or Adam, being the leader of the two of them, gave her bad instructions. And that is also a dangerous thing to do. So we do not distort God's word at all. Speaking his word accurately is what we're called to do. So then Satan responds, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He told her a half-truth, and he still does that kind of game today. He is correct that if you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will know good from evil. But the way that he lied is what probably Eve thought, that if I were to eat that fruit, my body would immediately shut down and I would cease to exist. But that's not how they died, right? They died spiritually. There was a spiritual separation that caused a severing of a communion between God and man. And later on, it's described as a great chasm that cannot be crossed naturally between God and man. That's what happened when they ate that fruit. And what makes this even more sad is it says that when she saw the fruit, she took it and gave it to her husband that was with her. He was standing by there watching everything happen. That is why later in Scripture, it attributes Adam as being the one at fault. Because he was the one that received the original command from God himself. And he was supposed to not only obey it, but also teach it to his wife. And he failed in every way. That is why he is at fault for this. Now, if you see the thought process that Eve went through, while she was at that tree, it is the same three basic elements of sin for all humans, to even today. And this is described better in 1 John, but it says that the three opportunities for sin is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And you see all three illustrated here in verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good, for food, the lust of the flesh. And it was a delight to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, the boastful pride of life. It's all there. And his tactics have never changed because he doesn't need to. They always work. So after they make some fig leaves and they hide themselves from God, God asks the question, where are you? Does God not know where he is? He does. He just wants him to answer. He knows something happened. He knows there is a disconnect that has occurred. And then what do the humans do? They blame other people instead of taking responsibility for their sin. The man says that the woman made him do it. And Eve says that the serpent made her do it. Or, quite frankly, the devil made her do it. I hope we are not like that today, where we don't take any responsibility for our sin, because that is a shame if we do. 
So then he curses not only the serpent, but then he also pronounces the first prophetic message, the first sign of the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Chosen One. Verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is talking about the forces of evil versus Jesus Christ. He is going to go for a headshot on Satan, but all that Satan is able to do to Jesus is be a little ankle biter. He can wound him temporarily, but it's not going to last. But when Jesus enters the scene and does his glorious work, it is going to be fatal to Satan and his minions. And that's exactly what happened 2,000 years ago, and it will come into full fruition when he returns. Then women are cursed with painful childbirth, and it mentions that their desire will be for their husband. Now, it's not talking about a lustful, physical desire for their husband. It's actually talking about the desire to be the superior one in the relationship. There will be a struggle for who is the head of the house. Not all women are going to like the lordship of a man. They're not going to like being submissive to a man. And so that's what it's talking about there. And then Adam has to work hard in order to work the soil, because the soil is going to fight him. Certain things did not exist until sin entered into the world. Thorns, thistles, probably things like mosquitoes, did not exist until sin entered into the world. But in addition to this curse, all of creation, even the far-off galaxies, were cursed with death and decay, which did not exist until now. But God, being God, did not give up or discard these people. He loved Adam and Eve. He was saddened by what happened, but he still took care of them, didn't he? He made garments of skin and clothed them. Where did he get these skins from? Something had to die to cover their sin. He killed an animal in order to have it be an acceptable substitute for their sin. And Jesus Christ is the only acceptable substitute for all of our sin for all time. Do you see how this all fits together? From the very beginning, the path of salvation, the design of salvation, was always there. And then we see mankind leave the garden, which is God's direct presence. And then they start multiplying. They start having children, and we see the first two human beings created, which are Cain and Abel. Now, we don't know how much time has passed from when they were born, because it says that in the course of time, so we don't know how many years it had been since then, but we show that Cain became a farmer, and Abel became a shepherd. And they both provided an offering to God, and Cain's was not accepted, but Abel's was. Was God picking favorites here? Absolutely not. There is no partiality with God. But instead, he looked deeper. What was Cain's motivation? 
What was Cain's attitude? Why was he doing what he was doing? And God saw a problem in his heart. He was harboring bitterness and anger. And that's why he rejected his offering. It's not because God likes sheep better than he likes fruit. It doesn't matter to him. It's the heart that matters. And he addressed it with Cain. Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? But if you do not do well, sin is waiting at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So this is important. If we do not do well, if we harbor anger and hatred in our hearts, sin is right there at the door, and it's going to come for you. He's not calling us to master the sin, because we can't master sin on our own. But we need to master our emotions, our heart, in order to not allow the sin to enter in. But out of jealousy, Cain killed Abel. And Cain lied to God's face. And so God punished him with a curse. It mentions that there was some sort of sign or mark that was put on Cain. We don't know if this is a physical mark. And there are legends that this means that this is the birth of vampires, but there's nowhere in the Bible that it says that. So let's not read into something that's not there. But we see him directly leave God's presence. In verse 16, Cain went out from the presence of God completely. And usually in Hebrew literature, the direction east is a negative thing. He went east of Eden. He went far from God's presence, the opposite direction. Now, this might freak some people out. It says here that Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived. Well, hold on. If Cain and Abel were the first human beings that were born, who did Cain marry? Well, bear in mind that the passage of time had gone on. So he married his sister or he married a niece, or maybe even a grandniece. We don't really know. But someone from Adam's family he married, because there's no other humans. There's not too much more to read out of this. And back then, you would think, well, incest is disgusting. And while today it is, absolutely, you, the genetic pool was very limited back then, as you can imagine. But not only that, but they were genetically perfect. There were no mutations, there were no defects in their genetic code. Therefore, there were not going to be any sort of abnormalities if you were to marry your sister or to marry your cousin back then. Besides, there wasn't a whole lot of options. You had to propagate the human race somehow. So that's where his wife came from, came from his own family. Then we see Cain's lineage, which is very interesting, even though he left God's presence, God chose to provide a brief lineage of Cain's family. Even though Cain's family intended evil, they were inventors of things that helped all of mankind, as we can see here. Instruments, implements of bronze and iron, tents and livestock. You see all this industry that was created through this family. So it's very interesting when you look at it like that. And then it says that Adam and Eve tried again, and they had another son named Seth, which literally means the substitute or the appointed one, which is the replacement for Abel. 
Now, as for Psalm chapter 1, this is a beautiful description of the faithfulness of a Christian versus the ungodly. And really, we can attribute what we're doing here as producing the results that are mentioned here. Because it says that a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, will be blessed. You see a progression here. If a man starts with walking, and then he goes to standing, then he goes to sitting, you see a degradation there. You see a reduction of righteousness. You're doing the right thing, and then you slow down, you get complacent, you allow yourself to succumb to sin, and then you end up being a sinner. But instead, to counteract that, it says that we need to delight in the law of the Lord, and that's why we're here. That's why we're spending time in God's Word. And in His law, we meditate day and night. It is constantly in our heads. It is constantly on our minds. We eliminate distractions in order to think about it more and to grow in maturity. And what result does that give us? We'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. Whatever we do, we will prosper. So all the seasons of life will pass by, all the issues of life will affect us, but we will stand firm. And that is important to remember. You have problems staying close to God's Word and staying strong in the faith. We need to meditate on this scripture often. And quite frankly, we should memorize Psalm chapter 1. It is not very long, and it is so relevant to us. The wicked get all this nasty stuff, and at the end, they will perish. And the word perish in the Bible is a permanent death. It is a spiritual death, the death that ends you in hell, not a physical death, because Christians will physically die if the Lord tarries, but we will not spiritually die. We will live forever with God. And so we have this beautiful reminder here in Psalm chapter 1 that that a righteous life is a fruitful life, and an evil life is a wasted life. And that concludes our reading for today. The verse of the day for us to memorize is going to be Psalm chapter 1, verse 2. But his delight, or if you're female, you can say her. There's nothing wrong with that. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And if you made it this far, congratulations. And let me assure you that not all of the episodes are going to be this long, and I hope this didn't scare you off. This was an introduction, as well as some very important things that we see at the very beginning of Genesis, but most of the recordings are going to be much shorter than this, on average 30 to 45 minutes in total. And that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan. And we'll see you next time. Take care and God bless you.